I'm Raj. I'm Ashwin. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. We are a podcast dedicated exclusively to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focused on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcasts in. Today, we are excited to talk about translocation 1114 multiple myeloma and the Vanito Clack saga. We are delighted to join by two myeloma gurus, uh, Dr. Martin Kaiser, a consultant hematologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital, London, and Dr. Rafael Fonseca, Getz Family Professor of Cancer at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us. To start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Dr. Fonseca? Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for, for having me in, in, in this podcast Rafael Fonseca, I'm at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. I, I did live also for 10 years in Rochester, so that's where I trained Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And I've devoted myself just exclusively to multiple myeloma, whether that's in my clinical practice or in my research endeavors. You know, I still have a, a pretty active laboratory. We have about, usually at any given time, three postdocs and four technicians. So it's 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 a passion of, of mine, and it's just so fortunate to be living through these times in which we're seeing so much change in myeloma. Great. And we recently had Dr. Kaiser on our podcast for an episode of high-risk myeloma. For, for the listeners, please check out. It was an excellent episode. Dr. Kaiser? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, Martin Kaiser at the Royal Marston Hospital and the Institute of Cancer Church in London and also specialized entirely clinically and in research in myeloma. I trained in Germany as well, so that gives me in Europe probably a bit of a perspective of different healthcare systems as well. And I have an interest in both regulatory processes and I'm involved in the European Hematology Association as well when it comes to, for example, access questions, which of course are very diverse, both in Europe and around the globe. All right, so let's jump right in. We'll start with a case as we do in most of our episodes, and then we'll discuss the biology of T1114 myeloma and role of Benito-Clax as we go. So this is a 48-year-old male that um, I saw in my clinic about a couple of years ago now, who was referred for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma was IgG lambda. He was presented with fatigue, weight loss, and bone pain. A bone marrow aspiration and biopsy showed 80 to 90% lambda-restricted plasma cells, with many plasma cells having a lymphocytoid appearance with decreased cytoplasm that was mentioned by the pathologist. The immunohistochemistry stains on the bone marrow biopsy showed CD38 positive, CD138 positive, Cyclin D1 positive, CD56 positive, and also CD20 positive, which is usually not seen in multiple myeloma, CD20 positivity. Uh, CD138 selected fish showed T1114 positive, and the patient also had gained 1Q3 copies, uh, was negative for deletion 17P, deletion 13Q, or hyperdiploidy. Uh, we did a PET CT as baseline imaging that showed multiple FDG avid bone lesions. And then the patient was started with a DARA VRD induction regimen with the intent for an upfront autotransplant. So with that case in the background, Dr. Fonseca, the first question for you, we wanted to first dive into the history of T1114 myeloma. You were among the first to identify T1114 in metaphysiogenetics in 13 patients in myeloma in 1998. Can you tell us the story of that discovery and what sparked your interest specifically in T1114? Well, thank you. I mean, first of all, let me just say this case is like so illustrative of what you can see with 1114. You know, as you were reading the features, it was like, check, check, check of some of the things we see in the clinic. And let's assume you didn't have fish. Anyone who starts hearing about this case should be thinking, oh, I wonder if this could be an 1114. So that's kind of my, my first quick comment. 
And so, yes, we had the first, I think we had the first publication in 1998 uh, on those 13 patients. Although, you know, honestly, this had been seen already in the cytogenetics before. It was just never grouped as a, <clears throat> as a subtype. Back then, I had a particular interest in lymphoma, even in mantle cell lymphoma. So, of course, it was like strange to see the same translocation as you would see in mantle cell lymphoma, as you could see in multiple myeloma. Now, I went into this because one of my first myeloma patients, a patient that presented with primary plasma cell leukemia, in fact, had this 1114. And I was just, just so grateful to have wonderful mentors. Back then, it was Dr. Phil Gripe, who told me, well, you should look at this into more detail. Now, at the time when we published this paper, we were reporting on patients who had abnormal metaphases, which today we know that is in and of itself just an indicator of more aggressive growth of the cells, more aggressive clones. So our first suspicion was, well, maybe it's a more aggressive group of myeloma. And we'll talk more about this, I know, as we go through through the story. But pretty much that's what sparked it. So I was very interested. There was a lot of work back then. You know, back then it was called the Cycling D1 was BCL1. There was this Dr. Tsuhimoto working in, in it. People were working. It was also known as Prat1 because it was, you know, of interest for parathyroid tumors. And just this notion as a fellow, I thought Cycling D1, something that drives cell cycle, this has to be the most interesting aspect of cancer biology. So that's how we, you know, we got started uh, with this. And, and of course, there were many things that happened afterwards, including with the development of fish. But that was really the, the, the start of the story from my perspective. <clears throat> All right. One question I wanted to ask, you know, the initial, and we will go into the prognosis in details later. But from a prognostic standpoint, did you observe any specific impact of T1114 on PFS and overall survival in that era, in 1998, that is before the era of PIs and emits? Yeah, so as I mentioned at the beginning, we thought it was aggressive, but it was mostly because it was coming out of metaphases. But shortly after, you know, people uh, were working, and, and this would seem prehistoric now, but back then we were all excited that we were developing fish tools for the analysis of some of these translocations. At the time, the late 1990s and early, you know, 2000s, the only tools we had were fish probes to count chromosomes, the so-called chromosome enumeration probes. So you could only look at aneuploidy and, you know, you could look at uh, trisomies, as you would see in hyperdeployed. In fact, the first publications with fish were on hyperdeployed myeloma. But there was a there was just a, a rush to develop the probes so that we could actually develop those assays for the 1114 translocation. And very quickly, as you know, as, as this came to be and, you know, the probes were developed and the techniques, you know, were established, now we can apply this to larger cohorts of patients where you could actually go in and test for the prognostic implications so it went from being a very negative one because of the the this metaphases to very quickly realizing it may not be, and perhaps it may even be associated with, with a good outcome. In fact, in 2003, the, the, the first sort of integrated publication we had with all the genetic markers, we suggested that 1114 was associated with a better outcome. We had a previous publication to just with 1114, and it showed the same thing. And and this was like, it was an interesting time. It was kind of like the gold rush, if you may. There were particularly groups in France, Dr. Avit Loiseau, Dr. Drac in, in, in Austria as well too, and, and some other names who were working very hard to try to elucidate what the implications would be for this marker. So it flipped from being a very aggressive marker to being, oh, maybe it's good. But one of the key things, and we'll talk more about this, of course, as we go through the, through the, through the conversation, is to realize that all of this is important 
to be described in a context. The context back then was treatment with malfunction and prednisone, which, you know, just for the audience who may not be familiar with this, back then the median survival of myeloma was just shortly over two years with malfunction and prednisone, which just is mind-boggling to see everything that has happened. But even within that short time frame, within that, you know, short lifespan, 11 and 14 appear to be doing better. Right. Any unusual clinical features in these patients? And I, I mentioned some of that in the case that I presented, but, you know, from your standpoint, like at that time, what were the unusual clinical features compared to a typical garden variety myeloma that you saw in sure. Well, as I alluded, you already covered them. I'm going to take a quick step out first and say, I actually believe, and, and the WHO, you know, has moved in this direction, but I actually believe that 1114 myeloma is a different entity. It's almost different biology than the rest of myeloma. Most of what I what we have seen is that all the indicators are that this is a plasma cell that is a little a little bit less mature. It's like a younger form of myeloma, if you may. Why do we say that? Well, first of all, the the cells have scant cytoplasm often, and they might be described as lymphoplasmocytic. In fact, I, you probably have encountered this in your practice, but many times I've seen patients who are, is this lymphoma? Is this myeloma? Just our pathologists are telling us this looks more like a you know lymphoid process. As you alluded, Rashtu as well, the expression of CD20 can be seen in about half of these patients, which is more of a B-cell marker, not really a plasma cell marker. There's an interesting association with younger individuals, 48 as well too, IgG lambda, but about 30% of these patients only produce light chains, and it's slightly increased also in the non-secretor version of multiple myeloma. You know, by all indicators, there appears to be kind of like a young plasma cell but not quite the plasma cell as we see, say, with hyperdiploid or with other translocations. Now, even at the molecular level, you see, you'll see differences. The, the breakpoints of the translocations, those were first identified way back in 1996 by Leif Berg-Sago in the 414 and the 1416. We already knew that 1114 existed, but then they went on to clone those breakpoints and they find out that they're all not the, uh, the same. So the 414, 1416 are at the time of class switching in the germinal center, was if the 11-14 can sometimes be a little bit earlier. And that still is a you know a matter of the work of many laboratories. But we we have seen over and over that this really leans towards a slightly earlier form of, of plasma cells. Right. I think you already alluded to the next question that I was going to ask. But just quickly, so other than myeloma, you know, there, there are other plasma cell disorders in which we see slightly higher incidence of T1114 compared to what we see in myeloma overall. For example, light chain amyloidosis, plasma cell leukemia. Can you allude to that a little bit? Like the, the, in these other plasma cell disorders, like which of them are really enriched in T1114 translocation? Sure. No, happy, happy to do that. And I'm going to put in a plug in here for fellows who may be listening to this that you never know the research project you're doing may end up being actually quite important. So we had this probes and we had the, we could test for the 1114 and uh, Dr. Susan Heyman was a fellow in the uh, fellowship program at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She said, Hey, I need a project. So I said, well, I don't know. We have this probes. Why don't we test the slides of patients with light chain amyloidosis? And so she presented for the first time in 2001 that 50% of patients with light chain amyloidosis have this 1114. This came about also Dr. Christine Harrison from the UK made, made a similar observation at the time. And it's one that has held over time that we, we really see that 50% of light chain amyloid have this. Now, this is one more indicator. I'm going to make a quick turn here. One more indicator why I think this is an earlier form of plasma cells. You know, I think a lot of people who have amyloidosis have a very discrete growth of plasma cells. 
And under normal circumstances, we just wouldn't know about them, except that they have a clinical syndrome. So they have cardiac you know, issues or nephrotic syndrome or what have you. So I think once you have something that tells you there's something in the background, then you're likely to discover it. And, and in this case, that's why I think the, the incidence is higher for the 1114 in patients with light chain amyloidosis. It's just that, you know, their phenotype makes us, you know, go back and say, yes, there could be, you know, earlier cells. Another example, of course, would be primary plasma cell leukemia. And several, several groups published on this, including ours in 2008, Dr. Tiedemann, who's now in, in uh, New Zealand, published that somewhere between 65 and 70% of primary plasma cell leukemia have an 1114. I think other publications estimate this at around 50%. And we see this with other disorders, again, that show up with a phenotype, monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance. We can see this, of course, in the non-secretory myeloma. And just to finish it off with another kind of arrow pointing towards earlier form of myeloma, IgM multiple myeloma. We, we had these debates, you know, 20 years ago, whether IgM myeloma really existed or not, or whether there were just some maybe clinicians who were a little bit confused and didn't know if that existed or those Waldenstroms. Well, back then it was, it was clear that the 1114, or for that matter, the translocations did not exist in Waldenstroms. 25 years ago, there was this thought that the Waldenstroms had this translocation of PAX-5. It's a 914 translocation. And again, we had the pro. So we went to test Waldenstroms. And surprisingly, IGH translocations do not occur in Waldenstroms. Uh, later on, as you know, the group from Dr. Trion went on to find the, the, the mutations on BTK that are fundamental for Waldenstroms. But then the, the, the French group, Dr. Garand and Dr. Vet Loiseau, then put the 1114 pros on IgM myeloma. And, you know, it's 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 one of the hallmarks for 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 that condition. So I think all of that congregates or segregates, if you may, into those earlier forms of of, of plasma cell tumors. Thank you. So, Dr. Kaiser, to you. Now we wanted to dig a bit deeper into the prognostic impact of non-translocation eleven fourteen in the era of proteasome inhibitors and immunomodulated drugs. What is the prognostic impact of translocation eleven fourteen? Yeah, thank you. I was really fascinated listening to this, you know, fantastic uh, summary of, of of a big part of myeloma history here. Uh, I think Rafa already mentioned too that the prognostic impact, of course, is so highly dependent on context. The the experience that we heard with malphalan and prednisolone probably changed slightly in the reports that we have been seeing in larger groups of patients that were treated with IMIDs, particularly second generation lenalidomide, and then proteasome inhibitors in that the outcome was not very fundamentally different. It was probably more that the outcome of those with hyperdiploidy has probably been uplifted and they have been benefiting quite exceptionally well from especially these probably more ongoing treatments than a short course of a treatment and at plateau stopping treatment and waiting for a relapse. So the studies, for example, from the Mayo group or also from the Spanish group and other groups are relatively consistent in the context of lenalidomide and proteasome inhibitors that if you split the groups up by the hyperdiploid group, the T1114 group, and then other translocations that are normally high-risk translocations, T1416 or T414, or in fact, other high-risk markers, uh, then the T1114 group comes out as a kind of intermediate risk group maybe by the hyperdiploid group really really achieving the best outcome out of the three groups through a particular response to these type of agents. 
Do we have any data on the role of upfront autotransplant and translocation 1114 myeloma? So in, in the work, for example, by the Mayo Group, there has been an interesting subgroup analysis into those that were receiving an upfront transplant or a delayed transplant. And it looks like the upfront transplant really was benefiting those with T1114 translocation more than the delayed transplant. It's always difficult, of course, in these analyses to, to tease out potential effects of refractoriness that might be kicking in later down the line with, with delayed transplant. But I think it is something that is reflecting experience of quite a number of us when we're treating these patients. There are just some of these T1114 patients which have a slow response to the biological agents that we have been using. Maybe it has changed a little bit with CD38, and I guess we're going to talk about that later on. But with, for example, VRD, a rather sluggish response. And then I remember very vividly a, a very young patient who was even primary refractory, moved on to alkylated therapy, still relatively limited options at the time, definitely. And, and then with the transplant got in such a good response and remained in a long-term response that one even wants to wonder whether there's a certain alkylated sensitivity in this group that might be more than in other groups. And, you know, if I could add just briefly that the, there's other uh, presentations, even the Spanish group, that seem to suggest that alkylators may be uh, useful in 1114. Um, it's one of those things that we will probably never have complete data sets. So a lot of this comes by inference. But some of the very long-term survivors in myeloma are 1114s that are transplanted. I, I kind of I remain a little bit biased in saying that I think patients who have an 1114 should be considered extra special as a possibility for stem cell transplant upfront. I had a quick follow-up, Dr. Kaiser. I mean, as your recent publication came out in Blood on the impact of lenalidomide maintenance, you know, the myeloma 11 trial based on the genetic subgroups, and we saw that the greatest benefit was derived by patients who had one high-risk abnormality, followed by those who had no high-risk abnormality, and those who were double hit patients, they had a small benefit. They had a benefit, but had a small benefit. So do you have any data on T1114 specifically? Like, did they benefit from development maintenance in the setting of modern induction and upfront autologous transplant? Yeah, you. I, th I think, you know, being invited here, of course, was a was a wonderful thing to look to look into that data again. And, and hopefully we will find the time to to look into it in more detail. It seems from a very first glance that already the patients who did not go on to maintenance therapy, so just observation, did actually quite well when they had a T1114 translocation. And there might be some additional benefit by maintenance, but it's it, it was from a first view. And of course, these are low numbers looking like the remission time as such already with a transplant alone was, was quite exceptional given the overall heterogeneity that we see in this disease. All right. So basically the Delta PFS wasn't that high as we saw with the one high risk. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Interesting. Right. Eddie, you can go ahead. Yeah, thanks. This is a um, really great uh, discussion so far. And I think now we want to turn to the other key part of the story, which is the oral BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, which um, is widely used now in CLL and AML, but has been making headlines recently in myeloma. As many will know, venetoclax is a BH3 mimetic, that is, it binds to the BH3 binding groove of BCL2, which is a pro-survival anti-apoptotic protein, which allows apoptosis of cancer cells to occur. 
And so we wanted to start by discussing the Bellini trial, which was the first randomized trial of venetoclax in myeloma. Bellini compared venetoclax plus bortezomib and bortezomib dexamethasone in patients with relapsed refractory myeloma, regardless of whether or not they had translocation 1114. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Now, unfortunately, despite a, an improvement in progression-free survival of 22 compared to with 11 months, the trial showed a worse overall survival in the venetoclax arm with a hazard ratio of about two, driven primarily by excess mortality in patients without translocation 1114, which were indeed the majority of patients in the trial. There are about 290 patients in the trial, only about 35 had translocation 1114 and about 98 who had high BCL2 expression, which we'll come back to. So Dr. Fonseca, we wanted to start with you. Could you comment on the results in the patients who had translocation 1114 and or high BCL2 expression? Thank you. Well, yes, uh, obviously, as, as you know, you already described, this was a, such an important clinical trial. And we'll talk more about the what ifs or, you know, what could have gone differently with this. Uh, but clearly had a significant improvement in progression-free survival. And Obviously, um, uh, th there were some concerns because of the increased mortality. But if you just look at the 11-14, the results actually are pretty impressive. Now, um, as again, you, you've said, we have that limited number of patients. So when, when it comes down to 11-14 and the PFS by you know the venetoclax administration or not, we're down to 35 patients. But the results that we're seeing there are consistent with what we see in clinical practice. So very clearly, you, you can say, at least with the data that we have from Bellini, that at two years, we have about an 80% you know, survival without progression. So that was actually, it was not reached. And you know, it's, it's really indicative of what we thought would be the outcome with combinations that look at venetoclax. Now we'll, we'll talk more, of course, about you know, the, the, the what ifs and what could have been done differently with, with this trial. But this just built on a you know series of other observations that had been made from the use of venetoclax in in uh, myeloma and, and in other you know similar disorders with 1114 as well too. Now it's it's interesting that we still are learning about the toxicity of venetoclax in in specifically in myeloma, which appears to be quite different from what you see in myeloid. I see a lot more concern with myelosuppression and other things. So I think I think for the right patient, it can be a very good drug. But this is the first glimpse that we had something that would be quite powerful for this unique biology. And why do you think the trial chose, given you know all the biological kind of context we discussed, why do you think that the trial chose to enroll all patients or all comers with myeloma instead of just patients with translocation 1114? You know, I think for the wrong reasons. I mean, I, I wish the trial had been restricted to the 1114. And if that were the case, I'm quite certain that we would have an approved drug right now for 1114 myeloma, just just given how those curves actually separated. Now we won't, we don't know, and and since we don't have it, we we you know we can't hundred uh, percent say that's the case. But I think there probably was an you know an aspiration or an illusion that, well, you know, if this if if this works for everyone, why not? It's such such a much larger market, right? Uh, but I think it's a good example of just just take a big win and move with it. And then just, you know, you can, you can ask the secondary questions uh, later. I do remember a lot of the discussions that occurred before Bellini and uh, many of us were thinking it should be done on 11, 14 uh, only. Now finding rational for things is I always say it's like finding kind of animals in the clouds, right? If you, if you squint a little bit, you're going to find a reason why maybe venetoclax can be beneficial for, for some non 11, 14, but I think the empirical data suggests that's probably not the case.
And Dr. Kaiser, what, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, what, what were you thinking at the time of Bellini's design and what, what, what are your thoughts on, on how we interpret the results? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very much, you know, with Raphael and off the same opinion here that when the first data emerged from a laboratory side as well, and I think Cyril Trezo in his time in Boston did really very nice in vitro experimentation that really showed showed a great sensitivity, particularly of cell lines with T1140. It was then followed up by the very early phase clinical development. So all the indicators were clearly pointing in the direction of, of a specific subgroup sensitivity of the T1114 group. I think what is an, an extra dimension that made the impact even then worse, maybe then for some other healthcare system environments is that there are environments where you can treat off license with a drug when it is licensed in another disease. And then for other systems, the lack of a license means that you cannot even think about moving forward with an excess discussion about a certain drug. And I think that was, of course, quite the the long-term negative impact of, of the design features that the Bellini trial had. Now, I, th I think it, the Bellini trial, of course, also highlights this big uncertainty that we have and that no one else, else really understands. It is the side effects of drugs. I mean, as much as we are all very good at uh, hypothesizing about mechanisms of action, the the mechanisms of a detrimental effect of a drug, I think, is still you know, the, the big dark art of drug development. And in this case, of course, unfortunately, it came back to bite without certainly anyone's, you know, intention. It had a detrimental effect, but it then, of course, led to a cascade of extra conditions being set by the regulators. I think this, this is the other risk that you see when such a design happens. The regulators are designed to watch safety, rightly, and in this case, absolutely correctly. But you wonder then sometimes in this scenario like this one, where there is actually a biomarker that could discriminate two groups, some of these reactions seem to be overshooting in covering the whole spectrum of disease. And that's very unfortunate then when you suddenly think, well, actually, maybe not both groups should be treated also in the second wave of trials as stringently just because of the uncertainties that were brought into in the original trial. Yeah, it's it's difficult to make the case. I totally hear where you're coming from, Martin, but it's difficult to make that case when when there's a sort of overall signal for overall survival harm. You can understand certainly where where regulars and regulators are coming from. I did want to uh, both about this group with BCL high BCL two gene expression, which we haven't talked about how they fit in with the T eleven fourteen, and we will obviously. But I'm I'm interested in we'll ask you first, Dr. Kaiser, what you think about this group with high BCL two expression. Do you think it was was the right thing when, when, with the analysis to group them together with the T1114 patients? Do you think they they fit many of the things Dr. Ponseca was talking about before, or is that another group again? I mean, with the drug, of course, being a BCL2 inhibitor, I, th I think it's it's really quite tricky how to interpret this. I think the the basic assumption is of course we're measuring something that is directly related to the drug activity. So it, it's not fundamentally wrong. At the same time, gene expression is of course something that's far more dynamic than a physical translocation that you can measure. And I think inherently just in form of the measurement, we have a, a bit more heterogeneity than that we get into 
uh, a drug development program that we want to base on a marker, on some marker that is as stable as possible. And none of the trial outcomes that we see in myeloma with most agents have one curve that just has no relapse and the other one has all the relapses. So in some sense, even within the BCL2 positive group, there will be heterogeneity in responses. And I'm wondering whether logically just it it just overcomplicates slightly the appreciation and the selection of patients as long as we're not having an assay that everyone is super familiar with and knows exactly how it works, where its uncertainties are over a proper physical marker like a translocation that's probably a bit more reproducible uh, in laboratories. Yeah, I want to come to you, Dr. Fonseca, but I, I mean, I want to make the observation that in follicular lymphoma, certainly is very BCL2 dependent and yet seems to be less responsive to venetoclax. And conversely, as, as, as much as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ashwin, but AML is, is less dependent on, on BCL2 and yet seems to be more sensitive to venetoclax. So, I mean, I, I don't know if, if I'm interested in your thoughts on, on how much any of that is relevant to the situation in myeloma, Dr. Fonseca, and, and, and whether you think we should, you know, the same question, we should group them together or whether we should think about them separately. Thank you. I, I think that's a phenomenal observation. One of, one of the interesting things is the translocation of 1418, which you know would lead to BCL2, is never seen in myeloma. I think it's like less than 1% of cases. But the interesting part is what happens downstream. So one would have never predicted that BCL2 would be important in myeloma until this basic you know, cell biology studies were, were, were done. And I think, I mean, there's a couple of aspects of this. One is the fundamental and the understanding the mechanism of action. And the other one is a practical, right? What do we do in the clinic and how do we select those patients that may be, you know, well served by receiving venetoclax? One of those examples, as you mentioned, was, you know, the ratio. I mean, the, 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 the ratio is, of course, something very interesting and it seems to associate it, but it's not perfect. Even when you look at Bellini, there's patients who had a favorable ratio who did not respond to venetoclax. As, as I say, for most of these markers, it's just approximations to reality, right? There's another publication by the group from, from Emory that looked at uh, flow cytometry-based lymphoid markers. And they say, well, we, you know, we can predict. I, I recently used a slide in a presentation where I said, okay, you have like the most sophisticated way of knowing who's going to benefit from venetoclax to the quote-unquote poor man's way of doing this. And, you know, the sophisticated way, of course, would include things like the ratio, maybe CYLD inactivation. But those are only done in very selected places. I mean, as I think as we all know, we just wish that fish was even done properly, even though it's been around for 25 years. How many times haven't we seen fish just done on unsorted cells? It's just, just you know, so frustrating. On the other hand, uh, a couple of extra comments for markers. One, it could be that, let's say you can't do the fish for whatever reason, but you had a bone marrow that had... C20 positivity or was lymphoplasmocytic or, you know, maybe that's a patient where I could empirically say that it would be reasonable to try venetoclax. And lastly, this is rare, but it shouldn't be forgotten. Through gene expression profiling, it has been shown that the 614 is essentially identical to the 1114. So patients who have that detected should also be considered for venetoclax therapy. And, and in fact, we've done something we call direct drug screening, which was started here by Dr. Stewart where you, you know, incubate the cells of the patients against known compounds. And the ones who had 614 showed exquisite sensitivity to venetoclax. And in fact, clinically, they also responded as well, too. All right. Just to clarify the ratio, Dr. Fonseca, you were saying that the BCL2 is to BCL2L1 ratio, right? Correct. That's correct. All right. 
Okay, so we'll go, before we go on to the Canova trial, which is going to be the biggest topic of today's discussion, I wanted to quickly touch upon the efficacy of anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies in patients with T11-14 plasma cell disorders in general, given anti-CD38 antibodies are widely used across all plasma cell disorders now. As we know, the efficacy of PIs and emits was somewhat suboptimal in T11-14. How about anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies? Do we have any data on its efficacy in T11-14 myeloma or AL amyloidosis? Yeah, you know, we we have a little bit of data that comes from some of the some of the clinical trials, of course, like Andromeda, as you were alluding to. But you know, one it was it was really important to know whether this actually would hold true for multiple myelomas. You know, I was invited by Manny Mojudin to participate in a study that we looked at real world evidence because C thirty eight is slightly expressed uh, at the lower level in eleven fourteen myeloma. So his question was, does that mean the antibodies will work or not? And and first, you know, we had the data from Andromeda saying that yes, they are they're they're actually quite effective. But then using real world data, uh, he was able to show that they're they're just as effective as if you don't have the 1114. So we kind of use the term sufficient. So there's sufficient expression of C38 for the antibodies to work just as well. So I think it's important to recognize that. But you know, weaved into that question is the fact that you know, other other drugs are uh, handicapped and don't work as well. And and we could spend probably the next couple of hours talking about why, but particularly bortezomib and and the emits don't have don't pack the punch against eleven fourteen that that they they should. And that's why I think kind of prognosis changed because everything else was improving, but eleven fourteen kind of got stagnant there. Um, and even for instance, in amyloidosis, having an eleven fourteen was a negative prognostic factor. Uh, for patients uh, who are treated with bortezomib-based combinations. All right. So now we will move on to to the Canova trial, which was recently presented at IMS 2023 meeting about a month ago. So after a Bellini trial in which the signal for efficacy was seen in T1114, the company did what they were hoping to be a registrational trial in T1114 relapsed myeloma and compared venetoclax dexamethasone versus pomalidomide dexamethasone using an 800 milligram venetoclax dose. The primary endpoint of the trial was progression-free survival, or PFS. Unfortunately, the trial did not meet its primary endpoint, with the median PFS of 9.9 months in the venetoclax arm and 5.8 months in the pomalidomide arm. This translated into a hazard ratio of 0.82, with a 95% confidence interval spanning between 0.6 and 1.14, and yielding a p-value of 0.237. Notably, the VGPR or better rate was almost threefold higher in the venetoclax arm compared to the pomalist arm, was 39% versus 14%. And also, interestingly, the time to next treatment was significantly longer with venetoclax, was again almost threefold, 21 months versus 8 months, with a hazard ratio of 0.55. And the p value for TTNT comparison or time to next treatment was actually statistically significant at 0.001. Regarding safety, there were about seven infection-related deaths in the venetoclax arm, but none in the pomalist arm. And however, you know, despite about seven infection-related deaths in the venetoclax arm, there was still a non-significant trend towards overall survival benefit with venetoclax, with the median overall survival being 32.4 months with venetoclax dex and 24.5 months with pomalidomide dex, again, a hazard ratio of 0.7 approximately, but the 95% confidence interval spanning between 0.47 to 1.029 and a nominal p-value of 0.067, so slightly missing the 0.05 mark. So Dr. Fonseca, why do you think the trial did not meet its primary endpoint? Yeah, well, thank you. That's that's a $64,000 question, right? And 
I have to say, we we have to admit it was a big surprise. No one no one anticipated this. In fact, I would have used the word it was going to be a slam dunk because of all of what we know. I've been trying to think a good way to encapsulate, you know, how how we're thinking about this. But it's like you've seen Tiger Woods play. You know that he wins every tournament. You know that the scores are perfect. You know that the swing analysis shows that this is the right player. And he had to win by five points and he couldn't do it. And so the, so the question is, and the competition was fair. Let's say the competition was fair. We, we're going to argue about the things that maybe made it a little bit kind of, could we have done this different? But, you know, it was a, it was a standard clinical trial. So then the, the question is, why? why? Why did we end up seeing these results? I think probably the, the best way to start would be, in my, in my mind, to start with saying, you know, the, the, the PFS that we saw in this particular clinical trial for Venn was way lower than anyone would have anticipated. And we've seen that. We talked about Bellini, of course, that's in combination with Bortezomib. But there's there's a number of other publications, a number of other series, and, and a practical experience that would suggest that it's not unusual to see a couple of years of disease control, even when we were using Benetoclax only with dexamethasone in this off-label setting. Now, things have improved substantially as we use it as part of combination, but let's just say that, you know, the, the numbers were were surprising. And and I think there's there's a lot of hypothesis of why we didn't see this this difference. I mean, to me, probably one of the uh the biggest one, and I, I guess we'll talk a little bit more about this possibility of informative censoring. I think probably a lot of patients were just looking for a way to get venetoclax. I would do that. I mean, that's 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 normal, right? And the, because this was a global study as Martin was alluding, it's not everywhere that you can actually have access to, to, to venetoclax. So when you look at, you know, the patients that came off the, the control arm, many more came off that control arm, you know, their decision or the physician decision. So I, I've been thinking a lot about this and I'm, I, you know, if I could think a case where maybe double blinding might have worked is this one, because then if you're double blinded, then no one would know. Right. But if, if you're if you're not on the venetoclax, I think you're incentivized to think about, is there another way that I can get venetoclax? And those things can have a very significant impact in, you know, in 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 how we interpret this results. You know, people would say, well, you know, what about the power calculations? Honestly, I would have, again, I would have thought in, in, in transparency that we just didn't need that many more patients because it, it, it was such uh, such an, uh, a good drug. And as, as you mentioned, Raj, one of the things that is surprising, despite those seven deaths, still the overall survival, you know, seems to be in favor of venetoclax. We cannot call it a significant, of course, but seems to be in favor of venetoclax. So I think there's a lot of things that knowing what we know now, we would do different, including the fact that we would not use 800 milligrams. Again, inference, but there's a lot of studies that are pointing towards 400 milligrams being the right dose. And 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 lastly, I mean, the, the, the one thing that is hanging on, on, on our heads is most of us use venetoclax in combination. So how relevant is this question? It's not like you're seeing a patient and you go, well, I'm going to use pomalutamide or I'm going to use venetoclax. In fact, many of these patients have already prior exposure to, to pomalutamide and they go on to respond to venetoclax when they're treated in the clinic. So the relevance of the answer to that clinical trial, it's, 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 it's still out there, right? So, but we have to live with the results for now. However, you know, things don't happen in a vacuum. And I think it's important to, for, for the audience to know that many of us, myself, I'll speak for myself included, I still think this will be a very important uh, therapeutic tool for patients with the 1114. It's just need to go ahead and and and, and prove that in a, in a in a different way, and not necessarily one that is driven merely by the need for you know uh, regulatory approval. 
Yeah, that's, I think you said very eloquently that, you know, the informative censoring, I think probably that is what led to the difference between the PFS and the time to next treatment, because in the pomalist arm, you know, many patients came off pomalidomide without progression. Maybe they were not responding well or something like that. And, you know, that led to a lot of informative censoring. Uh, why do you think, you know, though, that the venetoclax arm had a, you know, lower median PFS? Because the informative censoring should not really affect the venetoclax. Right. It should affect the pomalidomide. Do you think it was the toxicity and the deaths we saw or some other reason, maybe more aggressive presentation? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I think it probably was uh, more related to the dose and the ability to sustain, you know, and we haven't seen the full data because we just saw the presentation and, you know, I've reviewed the slides. I think, but the ability of patients to stay on therapy at higher doses, you know, it's, it's harder. Now for background, uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago, maybe we were still using higher doses of venetoclax. You know, we had patients that went as high as 1200 milligrams. Which you know nowadays we would go wow why why were you, were you doing that but I think like I mentioned more more and more it seems like 400 seems to be well tolerated and I previously alluded to the fact that we don't see that toxicity that is seen as you know in the myeloid disorders uh, we don't have to do the ramp up for the for the CRS so we don't have to to you know to to do those things I don't I don't know I don't have a good explanation Raj I mean why the 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 PFS was shorter in that particular subgroup of patients, but those would be some of the hypotheses that would come to the forefront. Uh, Dr. Kaiser, question for you. Do you think um, is T1114 an imperfect predictive biomarker of venetoclax efficacy? Do you think there is some other biomarker, like, you know, for example, as we talked about earlier, that would be better? Well, I, th I think Rafael already mentioned nicely, there is this biomarker understanding and discovery and you know excitement about uh, getting a better insight and the one you know about whether practically it's it's achievable to deliver it i mean even with t1140 one has to be mindful extra studies had to be performed to to even establish the practice around the globe around how t1140 is really measured and i think as it it still for me has a has an attractiveness if if it is a physical the alteration that is actually stable over time as a as a biomarker maybe over us un, unless we are overall in the world where we are more confident with working with ratios of, of markers etc for a selection i think maybe especially in a situation where lots of other uncertainties are piling up anyway about safety about uh, efficacy etc to go back to the biomarker can maybe be tempting, but may actually just cause more confusion. And I'm wondering whether the whole sticking to the T1114 just would have removed one more element of variability that you know we we otherwise are thrown into if we see with the next trial yet a different outcome. Yeah, I mean we are all familiar with using fish and even the community doctors now, so it's a much you know easier to access compared to something like gene expression. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to. I, I do want to ask you both about kind of the path forward. But but uh, before I do that, is do you have any other reflections on Canova, on the results that that we saw, or on how the trial was run? That that uh, you know, you mentioned blinding, Dr. Ponzeca, But if there's anything else that you would have approached differently post mortem on the trial? No, I, I think we covered most most of the aspects. You know, at the the uh, risk, of course, and uh, we already are there being nitpicky. I mean, this is the one situation where you have to really carefully analyze the trial and say, what is it about uh, everything that, how it was designed and then how it transpired 
that made us get the results that we were not expected. And it's again, it's not a result that would have been surprising at all. In fact, I bet you if you were to ask nine people, and nine people could be wrong, what was going to be the result of Canova? It was going to be that it was the superiority of venetoclax and dexamethasone. So we can only put certain weight and have to remain hypothetical about the factors that we have discussed. But I don't think I have anything else in particular beyond what we have discussed. Anything else we missed, Dr. Kaiser, before I move on? Are you happy? I, I guess, you know, it is just just the point that was made before. And I think it brings into focus this question about comparator arms and correct comparator arms. Um, the the reality truly in our clinics as well is that we would probably have treated a patient with pomalidomide already when we were when we would be considering them for venetoclax. And it brings up this conundrum of what do you choose? And it I find this conundrum particularly difficult and and really challenging in that here we were facing, of course, a setting where safety was still very high on the radar as well. And if you want to see one positive thing, I think the safety question, nevertheless, although there were more deaths related on uh, the venetoclax arm, nevertheless, the overall survival is is not disadvantageous for, for this treatment. So it's 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 actually providing quite a strong answer on that side. And it somehow nearly is dwarfed if you consider all the concerns we had some four or five years ago. The efficacy question is always, I think, more difficult. I think, again, that was alluded to already as well. Once you go into a global trial, you might also face that maybe uh, a wider patient population has been considered for this, maybe with a different starting position at all, you know, overall to trials that you have been running before. Maybe they have been in a more advanced stage in countries where they have not had good access to maybe either of these uh, treatment options, pomalidomide or venetoclax. And so suddenly you'll get, you may get just simply by having completely different uh, baseline populations, of course, slightly diff different shifts and drifts in, in, in the efficacy that you can see. That, that is then unfortunate because, in, again, it means the regulatory basis is the barrier at this point. This point, you know, now the hurdle of safety has been taken and now the efficacy hurdle is there to potentially have discussions about access in an unmet need population in countries where you cannot use off-licensed drug. So it, it, it becomes quite complex as to how much the frameworks that have been generated for licensing are really matching the needs in some of the healthcare systems about patient access to drugs. Let me come back to you then, Dr. Kaiser. What do you think, outs, you know, in, in Europe particularly, the pathway forward here is then for venetoclax and myeloma? Yeah, it's a, a very good question and a very difficult one because the the although the combination trials, of course, are very, you know, I think we're going to come to that they show amazingly promising results. I think from from many healthcare systems that are doing a cost efficiency analysis, these combinations will still then hit a hurdle in terms of the absolute price that the combination will constitute. Plus, there will also be an interesting question whether some of the patients are exposed to at least one of the combination partners in their standard of care line of treatment before already. So the single agent drug or the venetoclax dexamethasone combination for many countries that have a cost efficiency analysis would actually be quite a, quite a good match. It would be an oral all oral regimen. It's it's good for healthcare systems that are having limitations in uh, outpatient chairs for delivery of injection or infusion regimens that can be you know, administered in in remote geographical areas. And I think 
in public healthcare systems, all of these factors are coming into the evaluation often when you look at the cost effectiveness, the deliverability plays a big role in this. And it's uh, this result leaves it slightly stuck, I have to say. It's, it's really a shame. And it nearly is the question whether it will need stakeholders such as patient organizations and healthcare professionals to maybe take this forward to the payers and say, look, we're not going to get anywhere in the next 10 years. We, it's unlikely that maybe the, the drug manufacturer will take money in hand again for another study that will look at the doublet. How do you imagine that we will get access to this drug? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Certainly, I've had experience of that in Australia where you have to, with myeloma, you've got so many moving pieces and, and you've got to line it all up in the right lines of treatment to, to make, it, make it work. Dr. Fonseca, moving back to the US, if we put Canova in the context of, of Dream 3, which was Belantamab versus Pomdex and Ocean, Melflufen versus Pomdex, that were both negative trials that, that led to those drugs being withdrawn. It seems like it would be difficult for the FDA to approve an Inticlax in, in, in you know, a similar context. As Dr. Kaiser alluded to, there are ongoing studies of combinations. I know there was some early data of venetoclax with carfilzomib index at IMS as well. So what do you think the path forward is in the US for kind of regulatory discussions around, around venetoclax and myeloma? Now, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, on, unlike some of our global colleagues, we have been very fortunate that we have had access to venetoclax. But then my, my main, actually, my main worry is not even getting the approval. It's making this results becoming a barrier. So that, you know, insurers might actually would want to deny this because there's, quote unquote, no evidence that it helps patients beyond what pomalidomide does. And and as we know, as we mentioned before, the, the answer is, the, you know, the, the, the question is not as relevant because most patients will have the pomalidomide. So the, the, the question should be for that patient who has an 1114, who has no further treatment options, what could you do? I would hope to see many more trials, which I would happily enroll into if we had venetoclax up front as part of combinations, venetoclax as part of the treatment of the elderly. I think venetoclax in, in our experience is much better tolerated than Nemitz. So if you could have a Maya-like regimen with venetoclax that you could safely administer, it would be so much better for quality of life of patients. If I could do a venetoclax-like uh, master trial, but instead of LEN, use uh, venetoclax for 1114, or you know the same is true. If I could use Daravendex for patients with AL, I think those would be wonderful uh, things to have moving forward. Now, there's some practicalities that are going to come into play uh, very soon. And uh, some of them are that, you know, of course, the, the existing patent life for venetoclax is not very long now. It's different from when you, you know, you have a molecule at the get-go. Now, we have other BCL2 inhibitors. So I hope that other companies as well, too, jump into the idea that we might be the one who gets the approval. They have to be fast because the period of exclusivity has been shortened. So they have to be fast in getting those trials up and running. Uh, but we might have them. And and again, I, I I would really hope to see a future at some point before I retire where venetoclax is part of the upfront combinations for 1114 uh, multiple myeloma. You know, anecdotally, we've I've used it in patients who have primary refractory disease or, you know, a difficult dash impossible to treat primary plasma cell leukemia that responded just like that when they were used as part of a combination. So we'll have to wait, but I, I, I am afraid the answer may come not from venetoclax, but perhaps from other BCL2 inhibitors. Thanks, Dr. Fonseca. One thing is, coming back to the biology, you know, we've been discussing translocation 
1114 as a homogeneous entity is there a heterogeneity within translocation 1114 such as some data showing that cd1 versus cd2 subtype on gene expression profiling as a data shown by the arkansa group yes no i think well first of all just just from the let's say from the the perspective of what we see in the clinic i think we see various flavors, if you may, of the 1114. In, in one thread, I said at some point, I used to say that if you tickle the 1114 the wrong way, it becomes a really bad actor. And that's why it leads to primary plasma cell leukemia. What we have seen is there are some patients who have an 1114 who can do very well, even with residual disease. You know, I have a patient back from early 2000s that we transplanted here, still has a measurable M-spike. Back then, we didn't even do maintenance. It remains very well. And then there's CD20 that progresses in a couple of years as the most aggressive form of myeloma. Uh, one of the markers that has come forward is this marker of uh, CD20 expression. And there's uh, a number of studies, including studies from the University of Arkansas. There's another uh, publication from Dr. Yang that shows that expression of CD20 in general is a more favorable version of the 1114. And, it, and you know, one of the things we found, this goes way back to maybe 2005, if you actually do a race EGH looking for copy number gain or loss in the DNA of patients with 1114, they're some of the most stable forms of myeloma, which I think is probably going to hold true somewhat with the CD20. What I mean by that, you don't see a lot of genomic instability. They're more like follicular lymphomas, and therefore they probably are likely to respond very nicely to, to venetoclax. Now we know as well that not everyone responds to venetoclax and you know people have looked at some of these markers trying to predict which might be those those patients. One of the interesting observations made by the you know the group from Mount Sinai was this 1Q abnormalities. This is always very interesting because 1 1Q, you know, it's a is a house for MCL1. Just quickly, you know, MCL1 is the, the anti-apoptotic signal that occurs in about 85% of myeloma or 80% of myeloma, whereas BCL2 mainly in the 1114 is the other 20%. So the idea is, you know, could you compensate by upregulating, you know, MCL1 and, and other, you know, anti-apoptotic molecules? I think that's probably the case. We have an ongoing study looking at the molecular features of venetoclax resistance. So we're working with Dr. Mora at the University of Miami on, on, a, on a large study using, you know, genome sequencing. And lastly, we've been able to generate also venetoclax resistant cell lines in the lab to see if we can study the mechanism and then compare them to, for instance, what happens in CLL or in other myeloid disorders. I think, as you can imagine, there's not going to be big surprises. It's probably all through the same mechanisms. And the idea is that the cells just find an alternate route to survive despite the BCL2 inhibition. Given we have so many negative trials with venetoclax, should we restratify uh, translocation 1114 patients based on presence or absence of uh, chromosome 1 Q abnormality? Well, ideally, yes, but this would be another long conversation because then what, what 1Q, just three copies, or are we looking at focal amplification of MCL1, or are we looking at, you know, four copies or more? So it would be tricky, but I think it needs to be considered. One of the things that Canova taught us, which is a little bit uh, daunting, is that despite this being a global study, it took that long time to enroll patients with 1114 uh, for this particular clinical trial. And, and uh, we all think it's easier, but it just takes a lot of work. Uh, as we think about future trials and how many subgroups you might have and do you have the power, uh, it will remain a little bit uh, you know, difficult to accomplish everything we want. And I think 
a lot of the observations about venetic lacks will no doubt have to be somewhat uh, done by inference still like for the 1q abnormality all right. So before we wrap up, just a couple of quick practical questions. So Dr. Fonseca, what is the max dose of venetoclax you're using currently in clinic? 400 milligrams. That's that's what we're doing now. We have patients that aren't higher because they have been on that before and we're readdressing. But 400 milligrams would be the dose I would use. Dr. Kaiser seems like you as well, 400? Yeah, agree. Yep. All right. And then Dr. Fonseca, what prophylaxis are you using, like infection prophylaxis? Yeah, I, I, wish, I wish I knew, but there's two components to this. The first one is... IVIG replacement, that is crucial. That is crucial for everything we do in myeloma. You've all seen the data for bispecifics, but venetoclax, particularly in combination, can cause significant hypogamma. So it's very important to replace the IVIG. And then, you know, most people, what they're doing is providing some general prophylaxis, at least at the beginning of treatment. It's been argued that something like trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, maybe for 12 weeks would be enough. I know there's probably insufficient coverage for certain things, but then you have the, you know, the coverage towards also PJP pneumonia. So I think I would be comfortable with that. I know other groups use, you know, levofloxacine as well too, but no one has really hard data as far as what to do. Which combination regimen of venetoclax are you most uh, excited about, Dr. Fonseca first? My favorite combination with venetoclax is what was published by Dr. Bailey, Dartumumab, venetoclax, and dexamethasone. Highly effective. If you look at the if you look at the cascade plot in that JCL publication, I always say a perfect cascade plot is a square, and it's almost a square when you look at eleven fourteen. And they updated the data, the IMS, and you know I'm I'm gonna I can't remember the exact number, but I'm gonna say it was like seventy or eighty percent at three years without progression. And in our experience before, when we were using venetoclax and dexamethasone only, I used to say we used to get about a year and a half to two years of disease control, maybe on the average. I had patients who were on for five years until they progress. But with this, most patients are doing very well. So I, I have yet to see many progressions on Dara Vendex. I'm sure they will happen. It's just not, you know, the nature of evolution, but, but it, it would probably be much longer than that. Dr. Kaiser, is that your favorite combination too? Yeah, if I had access, I think it would be also my favorite combination. I think not only is the data really looking very striking, I think it's, you know, for uh, it being, again, a relatively small trial, it looks very convincing. And some personal experience, including patients that were very difficult to treat, I have one very sticking out who had developed a metastasized lung cancer as well and had to be treated with a PD-1 inhibitor in parallel, more or less. It's just very tolerable. It's a very deliverable treatment together with the high response rate. So it's, I would agree, it's it's the preferred combination. I don't want to minimize, you know, how careful we have to be with toxicities, but just as a story of color, a patient told me, this Dara, venetoclax, exomethasone, is very easy. The hardest part is just getting my IVIG replacement. So because of some of the side effects that patients can get with IVIG replacement. So that was his main complaint. And the main complaint when we have looked at real world evidence is pill burden. Just having to take that many pills, of course. All right. So thank you very much, Dr. Fonseca and Dr. Kaiser. I think this was a great discussion. We really loved this discussion. I'm sure our audience will love it too. And uh, we'll hopefully have you back again in future to discuss other topics, uh, all things myeloma. Thank you. Thank you very much. 